Welcome to episode three of the Needle in Your Bed podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Dudley. Today, I want to share a conversation I had with a very close friend of mine, Shelley Christensen. We have known each other for over 17 years, and throughout that time, I never knew that Shell was struggling. Shelley is a whirlwind of activity. She's been the president of her local JCs and won national awards. She was a successful realtor and then traded that in to be part of a business that became very successful internationally. And she still finds time to be a wonderful and supportive mom, stepmom, wife, and friend. Her volunteer work has included raising funds for cancer research through organizing a dragon boat regatta, traveling to India with a charity to deliver beds to those in need, and training a group of teenage volunteers to be ambassadors during the BC Winter Games. I find her inspirational in her perseverance and struggle and in her willingness to share her story. You came forward recently to talk about bulimia and started to tell your story. And so I've invited you on my podcast to talk about that a bit and really dive into what it's all about. Tell me about your definition of bulimia. Um, well, I think it can be it can be your best friend and it can be the devil. I think depending on the length of time that you have struggled with it, for me it's been almost four years. So at this point in my life, it's just, it's that one thing that I would love to like, just kick to the curb and, and not have it be a part of my life. And where are you at with that? Um, I'm working, working through recovery and trying to be fully in recovery. It's not always, um, I go through spurts. It's not always easy to stay there. There's a lot of things that trigger that trigger me, and definitely this last year and a half of COVID has challenged it a little bit more. But I I know that I have something, one or two more layers that need to be peeled back and resolved, and um, and maybe it's just holding on because it doesn't want me to be without it. <laughs> I don't need it in my life. I don't need it controlling my life, and I don't and I don't want it but it's sometimes really challenging to, to let it go or for it to let go of me. What do you think is holding you back at this point? I think for me, it has just become such a part of my everyday life. Um, You know, it's just, I've basically never known life without it. So, you know, maybe somewhere in my subconscious, that's a fear of, you know, how will I get through without it? How will I manage without it? In the periods of time that I have been in recovery, it's been great. Um, but it likes to rear its kind of ugly head. And a friend of mine would put it, the itty bitty shitty come club comes and chatters, right? And In your head. In your head and tells you all the negative things about yourself. And sometimes it's just really hard. So what kind of things trigger it for you? Like this last year and a half with COVID. Yeah. You you mentioned, but. Well, just being home a little bit more mm-hmm. or having people home more. Yeah. Um, not having kind of my space. Right. Um, definitely stress triggers it. Um, 
different stresses. Other people's addictions can be a big trigger. You having to deal with other people's addictions, like helping them through, or just you being witnessing it and kind of feeling the stress of it? Or I think a bit of both, witnessing it. Um, we have a family member and um, who struggles with addiction issues and behaviors and whatnot, and it's been pretty stressful uh, for us, and it definitely... Mm-hmm. Um, affects our life significantly and that that's really challenging for me. Mm-hmm. Would you consider bulimia an addiction as well? I would definitely say it's, you know, it's a, such a combination. It's a pretty complex, let's say disease or illness mm-hmm. um, because it is a form of addiction. It's a mental health issue, but yeah, it is, it, is, it has many of the same characteristics as, a, as an addiction to drugs or alcohol because it really is, um, a coping mechanism mm-hmm. and a way to numb and stuff things down, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, it. there are many similarities where it can really mirror an actual drug or alcohol addiction. It's just that it, food is the coping mechanism, or food is the drug, not all. So the food is what you crave and need, and then the bulimia just gets rid of it? Is that... So, yeah, bulimia, um, for anybody who's not familiar with what that is, it is basically the act of of binging and purging. Mm -hmm. Um, People who have bulimia, most often, it's a very silent illness. Nobody around you knows. No, I never know. Or it's not detected. So, you know, in that sense, it's very secretive. It's... um, very silent and basically you can get away with it because nobody is none the wiser and you look healthy um if anybody was to look at me they would never you know no. i don't look ill i'm not super skinny it's very different from anorexia but it is there are a lot of characteristics that are that mirror an addiction right let's take a step back in your life and let's can you describe your journey? Like, when did it start for you? It started back in grade eight. I believe it was grade eight. I had read a book. A friend of mine gave me a book. I remember it was called The Best Little Girl in the World. Mm-hmm. It was about a dancer. And who had a lot of pressure on her to be perfect, to do better, to be better. And there was a lot of that in my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of expectations and nothing was ever kind of good enough or that's how I felt and it was interpreted. And so I just, originally I thought, oh, I could probably lose a few pounds this way. And so, you know, I tried the behaviors that binge and and you purge and, you know, sticking your finger down your throat is not, uh, not the easiest thing to do when you Mm -hmm. first start it and you kind of think like, what the hell? wrong with me but then it became easy I remember it was over Christmas holidays and I basically got to eat whatever I wanted and I didn't gain any weight and you know I thought okay well I don't need to do this all the time and I don't think I did at the beginning but like anything if you do it enough and you get the result you want 
and it becomes a habit, mm-hmm. then it's kind of hard to stop it. And it was the one thing in my life, I guess, that I felt that I controlled and nobody else could. Now, were you overweight? Not really at that point. I was as a kid in elementary school. I was, I was chubby. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I heard all kinds of, all kinds of names, you know, when I got to high school, I don't, I don't think I was chubby. I had slimmed down a little bit. I also was a figure skater. So, you know, there was a lot of pressure there to not back then necessarily to be healthy and to be fit, but just to, just to do well. To do right. Fun. And to be a figure skater, you couldn't be overweight, really. You had to have a certain body type to be able to mm-hmm. do the jumps and the, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you right? had to be fit. You had to yeah. you know, be fit. And um, I'm vertically challenged, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> and so, you know, at five feet tall, you don't have a lot of places to distribute your weight. Right. So... You know, a few pounds extra on me was, you know, five pounds on me is like 10 pounds on a tall person. Mm-hmm. So I always felt that, like, I just always had to watch, watch my weight. Did it start, did the bulimia start trying, because of that, just trying to con- kind of control your weight? I think that was probably part of it. Mm-hmm. Just trying to control my weight, maybe lose a few pounds be able to eat what I wanted to eat. And then it became, I think, a way for me to to cope with whatever was going on in life, to um, kind of numb numb feelings. You know, mm-hmm. it's, I'm from a generation where people, you know, you didn't talk about your feelings. You had to make sure um, you looked like the perfect family because what would the neighbors think if, if we weren't? And, you know, your feelings or whatever was going on, didn't matter so much. Everybody just kind of swept everything under the rug, mm-hmm. hoping that it would go away. Right. right. Ignore it. It'll go away. Yeah. So with you um, and your journey of recovery, what steps have you taken? Like, well, and when the, did you start that? When did you realize that it wasn't a healthy thing for you, for um, anyone? Well, I think I knew it fairly early on. I think by the time I was about, probably about 15, 14, 15, I was probably border, borderline anorexic. You know, mm-hmm. I was just under 90 pounds. So had you stopped eating then? No, I hadn't what stopped. Is, explain the difference between bulimia and anorexia. Anorexia is more where you really restrict yourself with food mm-hmm. and you won't eat food. You'll maybe hide it. I mean, and you can notice a significant difference in weight loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did at that point think that I was probably heading that direction. And then it kind of shifted back to just being the bulimia. And I was, you know, I would eat. Like, I, you know, it was easy to, at school to go have that Slurpee at lunch or that licorice at lunch. Like, not eat proper food, but eat garbage. Mm-hmm. And then become addicted to the sugar. Oh, when I look back on it, it's a pretty... I'll say not great behaviors. You know, I would keep a jar under my bed. That so if I ate at night to kind of look normal to my family or if we had company or whatever, or I came home late and wanted to have a sandwich, I would just keep a jar under my bed so then I could, you know, purge it in the jar. It's rather disgusting when I think about it. Um I mean you just people who have who have 
at eating disorder specific, particularly bulimia, are masters at hiding it. Um, nobody would ever, we are sneaky and <laughs> um, we find ways to mask it um, so that nobody would ever know. There were times when I would be so kind of weak, like just walking across the hall to the bathroom in the middle of the night, like I would black out. So when I was about 18, the first people that I told were was a really good friend of mine and my boyfriend, and uh, they were really supportive and encouraged me to go get help. Mm -hmm. And I did. I went to the doctor. But back then, you know, they didn't, health professionals didn't know what to do with me, mm -hmm. what to do with, they weren't educated on eating disorders. So, you know, the first doctor, my family doctor sent me to a dietitian and the dietitian told me, okay, you need to eat this, this, and this from all the food groups at three meals a day. And for me, that was like overwhelmed because there was just no way that I could eat all that. That wasn't the, the problem, right? No, it, it wasn't that you weren't eating properly. It was that you were throwing up whatever it was that you... Exactly. That whatever you um, ate. And then I did go see a, you know, a counselor, or I guess, I, I can't remember if he was a counselor or a psychiatrist, but he knew nothing and wasn't the greatest. So that was a one-time thing. Mm -hmm. And then I had moved away for a while and I sought help elsewhere. And it was so long ago, I got, I, like I was 20 then. And I think that it made a little bit of a, a difference. And then probably the only time, the one time, the longest stretch of time, um, fast forward, you know, I was 26 and pregnant with my daughter. And then I knew I could, like I was not going to do anything then. And I didn't, I was good. And, and good even after she, she was born. Um, still in recovery, and then some some things ha happened in being in an unhealthy marriage. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stresses and um, some things that happened, and it just gradually came back. Different periods of time throughout my life where it's been worse. Other times when I've been really good. Yeah, you know, it's just kind of I guess been that crutch for me. And periods of time, especially. During my marriage, though, I didn't talk about it for like 18 years. Wow. And that was a long time. That was a lot, lot of holding it in. Yeah. And then I did, um, when that ended and I was I'm putting my life back together, I did share it with a few people. And then again, it just kind of, nobody talked about it. Nobody knew, nobody knows what to say when somebody tells them they have an eating disorder. And then... Yeah, I just, I guess, kind of cocooned again. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until about three years ago, uh, four years ago, I decided, um, you know, I was approaching 50 and I thought I really just, I need to get this under control because I remember thinking, oh my God, it's been five years, you know, it's five years too long. I got to deal with mm -hmm. this. Before I knew it, it was 10 years. Then it was 15 years. And then it was 20 years. And yeah. And so as I approached 50, I thought, okay, I need to get myself back healthy and physically fit, mentally mm -hmm. fit. Um, I've done a lot of work over the years, probably in my later years, probably from 40 on, mm -hmm. using some different modalities to, to help me um, peel back the layers and deal with the underlying issues because it's all about the underlying issues. It's not about the food. 
what are the underlying issues? What do you see as the underlying issues for you? I think a lot of um, not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. Um, Where does that come from? Because, I mean, having worked with you, you are amazing. I'm serious. Like working with you, I mean, we worked at the Cray Union for what, seven years together, something like that. And like you were one of those people that just knew everything and did everything perfectly. And, and is that all part of it too? You know, you were, and you were busy, like you give back a lot to your community and stuff. You're volunteering and what is it that's not good enough? Where does that come from? A lot of it comes from childhood. Yeah. You know, things that are said to you in childhood, the, the kind of family dynamics and what you grew up with. Mm-hmm. And just always, I guess, kind of stuck with me and then unhealthy relationships. Right. Um, for me, that was a big piece of it. Just not good enough. Am I worthy enough? Thinking that if I was, you know, perfect, because I could, could never be perfect enough in my family. There's always, I always felt like I, I needed to do better, be better. Um, and the busyness, or busyness is a way of, the, the more you're busy, mm-hmm. then maybe there's more acceptance and the more I do. And it, then it's also a, a form of avoidance. Yeah. And perfectionism, as much as maybe you try to be perfect, it's also a stall out. It actually holds you back from things as opposed to just living a messy life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and moving forward. And, yeah. you know, if honestly, I think if um, anybody on the outside looking at me would think, okay, she's got it all together because, you know, she's mom. And I mean, I've had a very diverse working background. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you know, very active in my community and volunteering, all these different things. And from an outside perspective, it would be, well, she's got it all together, but inside there was some, a lot of, a lot of dark times. Yeah. And I guess the, the business could be the avoidance. Never feel, I, I think the biggest piece is just never being able to be settled, to be settled or accepting myself mm-hmm. for who I was and that I was enough, mm-hmm. acknowledging myself, believing it, that I was enough. So always looking for that outside affirmation rather than being able to generate it for yourself. Yeah. Having peeled back the layers, you've discovered that it's obviously come from your childhood if you were never good enough. Do you have any instances or any examples of what might have had that made that little girl feel not good enough? Yeah, I I have a lot. Um, a lot of mother issues. Mm-hmm. It was always better to be seen, not heard. I never felt like I had a voice. My mom would always use this term, and it was, you know, "Who do you think you are, the Queen of Sheba?" <laughs> I don't know who the Queen of Sheba is, and it, I've tried to Google, and even Google doesn't know. So, if anybody does know, please, I want to know <laughs> who I she thought I was acting like. I've heard that before. <laughs> maybe it was a, so something about that era I don't know and I realize you know I can't always think of the specific instances mm-hmm. um, 
you know, we used to have to clean the house before we went to school on Fridays. And often she would do a check and something wouldn't be good enough and we have to do it again. Um, before you went to school on Fridays? Before we went to school on Fridays. How old were you when that started? I don't even know. 10, 11, maybe, maybe a bit older, maybe 12. There was just a lot of those kind of challenging things. Those kind of challenging things like? Well, I was, um, I was an A student, but I worked very hard mm-hmm. for my grades and I studied hard. And, you know, there'd be times where I didn't, I maybe got a B. <laughs> and it was always, from my recollection anyway, you know, well, got a B, but, you know, you can do better. And then I had a younger sister who, it was always okay for her just to get the C's. <laughs> right? Like, there was just always an yeah. expectation of me to be, to just always be better, to be grown up, not to be a kid. I was the oldest. My dad worked away from home most of the time, mm-hmm. a lot of the time. So I kind of took on the the brother role, if I had a brother, right? The boy of the house. Right. The man of the house. The man of the house, but it was me. Um, yeah. And I remember my aunt saying to me one time, like, you just never had the, the chance just to be a kid. There was always an expectation to to be older than I actually was, to not mm, yeah. be responsible, to always be responsible. You know, and they're just things, you know, I, I, in a lot of the work that I've done and peeling back a lot of those layers, you know, I realized that my mom did the best she could with what she had at that time. Sometimes that's a little hard to accept. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, when you become a parent yourself, you think, wow, like, I don't get it. How could you have been that way with us? But Feeling the need to be perfect has definitely, definitely held me back from things. Did your parents know that you had bulimia? Or at what point did they know? They knew, but they never said anything. When I um, told my best friend, my boyfriend, they encouraged me to tell my parents. Right. And I remember the day that I told my mom, I said, I need to talk to you. She came up into my bedroom, and the first words out of her mouth were, you better not be pregnant. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I remember that. Like, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I was not at all that kind of girl, but um, mm-hmm. teenager. And I remember telling her, I have an eating disorder, and I'm bulimic. And she said, well, we kind of figured so. Oh. And that was all that was kind of said about it. I said, okay, well, you know, I'm, I've told my two friends and I'm going to try and get help and that was really all that was about it. So they never really got involved with helping you find some support or no. supporting you through it or whatever? No, I, so that was uh, that was really hard. Yeah, that would have been kind of almost a slap in the face like but then I guess they just didn't know what to do. It was all so new back then, right? Yeah, they didn't know what to do. I had a cousin who had who was anorexic? So oh, okay. it's not like they weren't. Okay, so they, so they there were... was some familiarity there, but again, you know, you, it was a generation of you just didn't talk about things, right? You didn't talk mm-hmm. about money, and you didn't talk about your feelings, and you didn't talk about what was going on. And you sure as heck didn't want anybody else to know because um, you were the perfect family. We're supposed to be the perfect family, and so yeah, for so for a lot of the years, it wasn't until probably well in my late 
thirties after after my divorce, but um I was doing a fair bit of work and counseling mm-hmm. and had a conversation with my parents and just said, There's no judgment, but here's the things that I need you to know. You weren't there for me when I needed you the most. And I'm still dealing with it. And there's no blame, there's no but I just just need you to know. And it was interesting because even then like they couldn't say the words they would you know they would say after that i'd see them you know maybe on a monthly basis once a month or something or like, mm-hmm. how's that eating thing it's like just say just say the words it's okay yeah. you know um so yeah. I mean, it is what it is it was i it took me a long time to get past that because i was pretty angry a lot of years that you just were, it probably took so much courage for you to to tell them to begin with. That was probably the most courage I've ever had to muster up. <laughs> yeah, to have that conversation. And now I, you know, I came to accept it. It is what it is. I'm not. Mm-hmm. They are who they are. Yeah, I'm not angry about it. But you know, we just have to accept our parents for who they are because they're not going to change. Right, and it's you know, ultimately, like everything in life, uh, we can choose how we ourselves react to it yeah. what we do with it you know it's up to up to me so anyways you know a few years ago when I did get myself more healthy yes mm-hmm. in yeah. preparation for turning 50 because I thought god I'm 50 I, I just I just want to have good active healthy years ahead and that's when I started to talk about it a little bit more because and open up about it because I realized that, okay, if I've lived in silence for all these years, there has to be other women mm-hmm. who have also lived in silence. Because with an eating disorder, we hear a lot about eating disorders because people will relate that to teenagers. Kids, teenagers, maybe young women in their early 20s. But nobody thinks about it with women over 30. Right. Or over 40 or over 50. And because there's not a lot of resources out there. That's the other piece. It's hard to find resources and support. Even now? It's getting better. Mm-hmm. It's getting better. Dietitians now, there are dietitians that specialize in eating disorders. But they, they've been specially trained. They understand how they work. Counselors who specifically deal with, with eating disorders. Right. Treatment. Different forms of treatment. Different treatment centers around Canada and the U.S. tend to be more in the bigger city centers. You know, smaller communities. Again, it's harder, but I think if you look at whether you're a corporate working woman, mom, wife, or whether you're a stay-at-home mom, wife, or single parent, you know, you're so busy during those years with your kids, just because women are, we're made to look after everybody else. Right. We usually Mm -hmm. come last, right? We put ourselves last. Well, it's interesting you say that because the time that you didn't do it the longest period of time was when you were pregnant so you could do it for your daughter but you haven't been able to do it for yourself you know yes you're right you're you do it for everybody else you're there to take care of everybody else yeah and you know years go by like i said mm-hmm. and then one day it's like okay <laughs> what about me like i need to why am i still dealing with this why am i having it and you know, when I say it, you know, people will say, well, why don't you just stop? It's just not that easy. It's a habit that's ingrained. It's, it's common 
for someone brushing their teeth every day, you don't even think about it. You just do it. So that's what it's like for me. Or bulimic, especially over a long period of time. It's just a normal part of everyday life. Not that it's normal by any means, but it's just a part of your everyday. It's your normal. And it is something that's always, you know, there are times when I used to think, God, why wasn't it drugs or alcohol? Which I'm grateful that it wasn't. But somebody would have noticed, right? There's all right. kinds of help out there for drug addiction, for alcohol addiction, because it's a silent, you can't tell what, that I'm bulimic. Nobody knows. Right. You want to ask for help, but you don't know how to ask for help. And it's just not accepted. People don't talk about it. it no. It's not on, you know, it's a conversation that nobody has. And it's a conversation that needs to be open and it's a mental health issue and you know with drugs or alcohol you can remove yourself from that food yeah to it to a degree to a degree yeah you don't need it the food you need food, to live. we need we need it to live and food is you know how do how do we gather as long as we go back in history people have used food for gatherings and to come together and to socialize mm -hmm. and to have traditions yeah so it's not like you just can remove yourself no it, it's just always there it is always there and so it it's easy access to to a drug that you use to help you feel better to numb whatever you, it is that you need to numb when we worked together there was always a corporate christmas party and we always had lots of fun yes. um and there was always lots of food and there was lots of alcohol. What would you do in a circumstance like that? Like, how do you go to something like that? I mean, we all had a lot of fun. And, you know, one of the life of the party. <laughs> <laughs> I have been known to dance on a table or two, yes. Mm, in, my early, yeah. in my early years. You play a mean air saxophone. <laughs> that I do. And I'm really proud to say that I... And still up to two years ago when the last time I was out yeah. I've been able to do that um, yeah so it played a big part in my social life because knowing that we were going to I was going to a party or a dinner or whatever like that mm -hmm. most of the time I probably wouldn't eat all day I would have dinner but I would have just enough so I didn't necessarily on those occasions go binge and purge or eat and then feel like I need to go purge oh, okay. eat enough but there were probably times knowing that you know if there was a place that I could escape to like if it was an outing where for instance the Christmas parties and we were always at a hotel where we have rooms I could easily slip out and go back to my room I can tell you that not that I'm at all proud of this but you know I have whether it be at a restaurant whether it be it wouldn't matter where it was if I was finished eating and I felt like I was too full, I could just go to the bathroom and it wouldn't matter where it was, wow. which I've seen some really not nice bathrooms. <laughs> oh, yeah. That just is so, it, it just sounds so desperate. I mean, it's hard enough to go into those places and use them for what they're intended. <laughs> Let alone stick your head in it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not, I shouldn't laugh. It's not funny. 
but but it also was just that was just the routine that was the mm-hmm. habit I just I didn't really even think about it getting yeah. rid of the food was more important than where where it was or what you yeah. or what the surrounding life wow now part of the reason you came forward you started to get healthy was a few years ago you started to well you've done the you, you know you've been doing the counseling and stuff but you also started taking some nutritional supplements that seem to help. Are you still taking those? Are they anything special or was it just something that you did for a bit and then it's... Oh no, I've continued on. They kind of came to me, fell on my lap. I had never mm-hmm. been one to take anything, vitamins of any sort. I started taking them. So for, for many, many years, I had what I now know as adrenal fatigue but then I didn't know I just thought mm-hmm. it was just normal you just be tired all the time and because I was so busy with a variety of different things I, I didn't sleep much um, I was just always kind of working on on a project of some sort and when I started taking the supplements so a couple of things that have happened I guess I should back up a little bit because I have abused my body for mm-hmm. so many years my digestive system didn't work on its own for probably the last good 20 years, um, unless I took something over the counter or I had a specialty that, because I could go for you know, a week, sometimes 10 days, and not go to the bath, which is really not healthy for you. Mm-hmm. Um, my metabolism was totally messed up. Mm-hmm. Adrenal fatigue, I didn't feel good, but my body had no nourishment. Right, it wasn't retaining any any kind of substance of healthy mm-hmm. nutrients, and so when I started taking some of the these different supplements, I noticed changes right away. Basically, because I was flooding my body for the first time, I think it it had ever had good nutrients, and so it was just grabbing onto everything. I remember this one week, I felt like I was having a bit of an out of body experience, <laughs> just because I had so much such clarity and so much energy and the one thing that I really learned from it was I never knew it was possible to feel as good as I felt like I didn't know how crappy I had felt before when I just thought okay well this is you know you just accept it as your normal and then you have this big shift to a new normal yeah and wow like I feel like I've had a whole new lease on life and over time my body started to repair itself and my, di- my digestive system started working on its own. And, you know, it may sound a little funny to hear this, or, but I remember the first few times when, you know, I felt like I had to have a bowel movement and it was like jumping up and down for joy because this is what normal people feel like. like <laughs> I, I, never, I didn't know what that felt like. Like I, wow. I really didn't know what that felt like that have it happen naturally you know yeah. it's one thing if you take you know something to induce it you're expecting it but right to have your body just say hey it's time <laughs> it's time I need to go yeah. to the bathroom that was like this is so cool and you know my body started to uh, my metabolism started to reset itself I just started to feel so so much better because with bulimia like you mentioned about you lose you don't have any nutrients and then there's you know the acid when you throw up when you're anorexic 
you're not putting any food in. So that is a bit different, but the bulimia, you're putting food in and then you're getting rid of it. So none of those nutrients stay there either. Is that, is yeah, that the right? Nutri- the nutrients don't stay there. The bad toxins stay there. <laughs> the nutrients are gone, oh, right? But I think the bad toxins probably still stay. So like if you ate your body. sugar, the sugar. Which I was addicted to sugar. Like I was addicted to anything sweet. Like, yeah. Because that would give me that little boost of energy or that high. And, you know, anytime you eat sugar, sugar is an um, addictive substance that then you want sugar again. Like if you eat sugar, yeah. you'll crave sugar for the next two or three days. And, you know, you mentioned the um, the acid reflux. Like I never had issues with acid, acid reflux. However, mm-hmm. the acid from vomiting all the time mm-hmm. has totally stripped my teeth of the enamel. I have, you know, fillings and crowns on every tooth pretty much in my mouth. I have a very expensive mouth <laughs> <laughs> because I've had a few nice holidays with that, with that I've spent on dental work. You know, at the same time, I'm probably fairly lucky because I don't have, I could have probably had a lot of other health issues. To my knowledge, I don't. But who's, who's to say? You know, definitely, I think my, I have some degenerative discs that my bone density probably isn't as good where it's older than, than where it should be. Again, partially because of that nutrient. Right. So this these nutrients that you started taking, they've helped you regenerate, but there's only so much they can do. I mean, yeah, you I do mean, it like, for 40 years, and then you start taking supplements, you know, for four years, it's not going to undo all the, right. the damage that might have been done. Yeah, I mean, I think, prior. you know, it's, it was a long time getting to this point, but mm-hmm. to the, the, the point that the damage has been done. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's not going to happen. The repairs don't happen overnight and it may never repair itself because the, the, it's gone yeah. so long. However, I continue to take those supplements because it's good for my body. Like yeah. It's, it's good. It's good nutrition for me. It's keeps my body in check. It keeps mm-hmm. my body functioning and I'm committed to doing whatever I can for my body to try to make up for all those years mm-hmm. and, and to, you know, hopefully live out the rest of my years as healthy as I possibly can be and realizing I think as we get older we realize too that you know we only have one body one mm-hmm. vessel and um, you can only abuse it for so long mm-hmm. and then you need to I don't know maybe I've significantly reduced my lifespan maybe I'll be 10 years shorter than I should have been I don't know but right now I just know that I need to continue to keep it as healthy as I can and if there's you know more repair work hopefully it's slowly repairing itself yeah now you have a husband who loves to cook and he cooks amazing meals and they look healthy what do you do in that case I mean I'm assuming he knows about your bulimia yeah so but he cooks these amazing meals so (laughs) what do you do yeah, I'm 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 very blessed. He is an exceptional cook, but for the most part, he, you know, he cooks fairly healthy. Mm-hmm. It's it's easier for me when he cooks healthy to just eat normal, right. and, and and to not 
do the binge. Oh, okay. I, I won't. Generally, a binge, a binge and purge is often when you're by yourself. So, you know, when, when I'm, when we're having meals and stuff, I, I, I'm a foodie. I love pretty much any kind of food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's not always a problem. Sometimes I have to remind them, like, I don't want to eat too much pasta. You know, I try not to eat, like, I don't eat potatoes very rarely. I don't like to eat a lot of pasta. I like pasta, don't get me wrong, but I don't like to eat a lot of it. And there's certain things that I feel better eating than others. Like, mm-hmm. I like angel hair pasta as opposed to a penne. Or a heavier stuff. Yeah. Or white rice. Like, I don't want to eat white rice. White rice. Right. So, it's a, for the most part, that's not so much. Yeah of an issue it's actually really good for me because i am eating good and healthy i often will take instead of the dinner plate i'll take the middle size plate because then i don't there's not so much space that i think i should fill up so and it's not that i'm restricting i'm just eating healthy portions a, a healthy portion are you still doing it are you still binging and purging? i do on occasion but it's more you do you feel like you are more under control with it or is it still controlling you uh that's a really good question <laughs> i think some days i'm definitely the one in control mm-hmm. and other days it's definitely one with the one in control and you know that's interesting that you bring up that question and just just the word control because the one thing with an eating disorder you feel like you're the one in control, but it tricks and manipulates you, and it's actually the one in control. <laughs> it controls every aspect, basically, of, of my life in some form or another. But I would say that when I am best in control is when, not that I believe that we can ever truly have perfect balance in life, but when I'm taking care of me and I'm getting my proper exercise physical physical exercise whether i'm out riding my bike out walking boot camp working out just on a regular basis like when i'm doing those things regularly and so not extreme not extreme no because that can extreme exercise can be another part of an eating disorder because then you overcompensate right maybe Mm -hmm. but not extreme just Regular. Some kind of physical, regular activity, five five days a week, let's just say. And I'm eating healthy, getting the proper rest, and just doing a few of those things that are self-care that kind of take care of me. Mm-hmm. I'm much better in control. If that stuff isn't happening, so, you know, with COVID, when everything was shut down and locked down, there was no more going to boot camp. There was... I'm not so good at doing that stuff. You know, I'm not disciplined to get up in the morning and do it at home on my own. It's much easier to stay in bed because it's cozy, (laughs) right? (laughs) Or get up and do something else. Um, Well, and there's no accountability, right? Like no accountability. When you're going to the boot camp, the instructor is waiting for you kind of thing or expects you to be there. So, you know, having that accountability makes a big difference. But I think that's when I'm at my best is when kind of those key pieces are taken care of. And keeping your life as in balance as possible is what Yeah, because I think I mean for for all of us, for for mm-hmm. everyone, right? When we are taking care of ourselves and our mental well being, 
and physical well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, we can deal with things better, manage stress better. And... Well, and as you know, I had a son who was an addict and the same thing, though, exactly the same. As long as he was in balance, his whole life was in balance, you know, working, playing, eating properly, working out, taking care of himself, he had he had more strength to control it than when he wasn't doing those things. Mm-hmm. You know, with if one or the other, but if any one of them got out of whack, then it, it, it was just so easy to go down that road for him. Right. So it it, it is like that, keeping that life in balance. Given that it seems to be predominantly female that are bulimic or have eating disorders. I'm not saying that it's only females, but it's predominantly female. What steps can be taken to ensure a person doesn't go down that road? Well, first of all, yes, it is. They're predominantly female, but there's a lot more men that we know who struggle with eating disorder. And, you know, for men and women, but I think especially for men, um, it's that much harder to come forward. There's so much shame attached to it mm-hmm. that I think that's why it's just not talked about. What can you do not to go down that rabbit hole? Yeah. Well, I think finding that person, finding a counselor who specializes in mm-hmm. disorders, number one to talk to. I mean, I didn't just seek out counseling. I've used various modalities to help me deal with the underlying issues of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one being EFT, which is tapping, energy, different energy work. I've used another called Psych K, mm-hmm. another form of therapy. So, you know, you got to find kind of what it is that works for you. Maybe it's meditation. I am not good at meditation because I can't sit still. Can't sit still <laughs> long enough. Hey, tell um, me about it. <laughs> I've tried. I've tried. Um, and, and there's not just one thing. It's not a cookie cutter. One one remedy one modality fixes everything Mm -hmm. it just doesn't work like that but i think if you can find supports around some counseling or dealing with the underlying issues finding um, people to talk to who can relate to what you're talking about Mm -hmm. because even when i decided to open up and kind of come forward and started sharing even the people around me that have known me but that are close to me and know me still don't they don't ask questions they don't again it's not talk, nobody asks says anything about it because right. i think they don't fully understand or they don't know what to say so that makes it really hard because yeah. then you feel like you're kind of on the island alone again because you don't have anybody to talk to that you can relate to mm-hmm. i think that's where if you can find a support group, if you can find, um, you know, and there are different um, people online who run um, eating disorder support groups, uh, podcasts. And I just really felt like if I start talking about it, if I can open the conversation mm-hmm. and maybe it's somehow create a space for other people who need to be able to open up and talk about it, to share that this probably dark and secret that they've been carrying this all by themselves you know I, I would like to be able to do that I would like people to have that place and not feel so alone not feel that that, that they that they can't be heard and to also just know that they're they're not alone that there's 
so many other people in the same struggling with the same thing mm-hmm. be varying different varying situations but struggling with, with the same with the same thing and yeah. can't talk about it you know it just continues like the, the struggle the battle the behavior continues as a friend what would you want from a friend if you told somebody that you were bulimic what would the perfect friend do for you how would they um support you how would they bring it forward what would they what would what do you need from those people in your life i think one of the things that is so important i guess for for friends from my perspective would be mm-hmm. ask me about it like don't be afraid to ask me about it you know let let me share with you what my journey has been like and it's mm-hmm. not because i want your sympathy or your empathy or anything but I really feel that people don't know what they don't know. And they, so how can, how can they relate? How can they, how can they understand if they don't know? So I think it's just for them not to be afraid to ask about it. Say, tell me about it. Like, explain to me what that means. Like, what was it like? Why do you do it? Like, whatever the questions are. And I think even that, like for me to be able to talk about it helps me in the recovery, in the healing process. For people to know, because you're not ostracized, you're accepted. Yeah, don't you know? You don't have to say anything. Like, ask Mm -hmm. me the questions. You don't. When I share with you, you don't have to say anything. It's more information education, I guess. Right, right? and have a better understanding. And I also think too, sometimes if we understand it, we can understand. Maybe you'll help you understand some of my quirky behaviors or why I do some of the things that I do. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so you don't want me to follow you to the bathroom? No, I don't want you to follow you to the bathroom. You know, I don't... You don't um, need somebody to parent you? or I don't need somebody to hold my hand. I don't need somebody to parent me. Sometimes what, what I would need is somebody... When, the, when I'm in that space of feeling like I need to carry out the behaviors or you know have a binge purge sometimes what i need is it's kind of like AA. i just need i need to be able to reach out to somebody to just right. say hey um i'm struggling right now do you have time to talk and it doesn't even necessarily need to be to talk about what's going on it's just distract me right just i need a distraction for 15 minutes mm-hmm. <laughs> do you have 15 minutes right that's maybe if it is more of a conversation mm-hmm. around what's going on that's great too but sometimes it's just that support to keep me from going down that mm-hmm. path yeah and 15 minutes is nothing right in anybody's life to be able to help a friend yeah i mean you it's know just... what sometimes it might just be a couple of texts back and forth it's enough to distract me long enough to let that feeling pass right or Tell me a funny joke or, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's just, you, you need to find that one thing that is that distraction that mm-hmm. keeps you from, or keeps me from binging, taking that binge, taking, getting, going down that rabbit hole because it's so easy, so, so easy to do. And especially, especially when you're alone, I'm, a, I'm an introvert, extrovert. I like, I like my alone time and my alone time is good as long as I am doing something like focused on something and got a project or whatever it is 
But if it's been a stressful time and I'm alone, or there's external things going on that is causing a lot of stress, those are not easy times those to are, get past. Right. Those aren't the times for you to be alone. No, but they're times that I need to learn to be alone to not, and then not use the food as the, the coping mechanism, which often it can start out that way. You know, mm-hmm. just have a nice meal or make myself something to eat. But then it kind of snowballs and then it's like, oh, well, let's go raid the pantry. And <laughs> what's in the freezer that I can do real fast? Now, you mentioned that you had a daughter. How is she with all of this? So my daughter is 20, almost 28. She is super supportive of me. She, too, had an eating disorder, which mm-hmm. um, was always my biggest fear that she would end up having one. And I think she was 14 when I found out. I actually heard her one day, and we had a conversation about it. And within the week, I had her into counseling, which was, was good. She she was able to step past it. She's you know been certified as a holistic nutritionist, oh, and so she's really um, took a different approach and really mm-hmm. educated and, and herself on on food. Not that she doesn't still. I think, you know, it's like a re- an alcoholic in recovery or an addict who's trying to stay clean, right? Like it, you're always a little bit on guard and you're you're always aware of it. And sometimes those feelings that trigger you can, can come back up. Mm-hmm. But her and I now can have some pretty open conversations with each other, open and honest conversations with each other around food, around our individual struggles with an eating disorder. But she's she's very supportive of of me and encouraging. Sometimes mm-hmm. she's more like the parent and I'm the student or the, the kid. <laughs> she she's uh, a wise a wise old soul and gives me a lot of good advice with good support and So what are next steps for you? Next steps for me is just to continue on um with my counselor. And, you know, I've now gotten back on track with some regular exercise uh, workouts. And just with COVID, it kind of a crunch in that for a while. Um, and continuing to do what I can to advocate for, around eating disorders to bring education and awareness to people, mm-hmm. um, even through our own different resources, our mental health organizations and eventually i'd like to start something where people could come together and support groups where people could just have a place have a place to share have a place to be heard or just have a place to to be even if they don't wish to speak but just to be and know that they're supported and that recovery is possible it's just you got to do the work to get there and i know it's possible i've been there Mm-hmm. I need to get back to that place to be in full recovery. So are you thinking of support group in person, like uh, on a community level, or are you thinking of a support group on Facebook or a blog or anything bigger um, than Yeah, I would, like to, I would like it to be in person. I think in person just is always so much more effective. Of course, you know, COVID's opened us up to the world of Zooms and webinars, which mm-hmm. is fantastic because we can reach more people that way. I have started a Facebook, uh, a private group on Facebook called Beyond Bulimia. Um, so that's, 
you know, I, I'd love to build a community in there, a safe, supportive community in there. You know, it's the challenge with it is, um, like I said, you know, we, we don't know who we know that has, that may be struggling with an eating disorder because I pretty much guarantee that everybody listening, everybody who we work with knows somebody who knows somebody. Mm-hmm. Only we don't know that they have it, right? We don't know if it's that silent struggle. And they just look like they're healthy. They look healthy. They look normal. I mean, sometimes you may pick up on these things you may pick up on mm-hmm. if you were watching for it. So I think it's just, yeah, I'd like someday further not to be the stigma attached to it, the shame and guilt attached to it, the I just like for people to be more accepting to it and that there would be more more resources readily available for people. More support, more government funding. Yeah, I mean there there's a lot of funding for a lot of other programs that that don't even have near the near yeah. near the numbers. You know, we haven't talked about any stats and stuff, but that's maybe for another show on it, more of an educational yeah. <laughs> piece. But you know, just even looking at, and I'm going to use the youth, eating disorders in our youth are two to three times higher than the numbers in juvenile diabetes. But we never hear about the eating disorders. We hear lots of juvenile diabetes. And I'm not yeah. saying it's not important. It's not, you know, we need to address it. But just statistically, it's mm-hmm. lower. And again, here comes the stigma, right? With juvenile di- diabetes. They're born with it. They can't do anything about it. Whereas somebody throwing up, they can stop that anytime. Well, and yeah, and right? it also comes it's, down to there's it's it's in the medical system, so there's a medical treatment for it, right? Like the right. insulin is the treatment, yeah, the treatment. And there's again, as you said, for bulimia, there's every person is individual, and you need to treat it individually. So there's no one stop shop. Where you just say, here, take this and you're fine. Any final comments that you would like to make? Yeah, I think if you're listening and you really don't know much about eating disorders or bulimia, you know, I can't, I know little bits about anorexic, anorexia, Mm -hmm. but I, I would encourage people just to do a little bit of their own research and homework and self education. Mm-hmm. around it just to have an, maybe a little bit more of an understanding about it and to not be afraid to talk to people about it mm-hmm. to recognize that it is it is an illness it's a mental health issue and we need to open those conversations so if they if there's somebody they know and love and want and they suspect something is happening Ask the questions. Ask, yeah, ask the questions because I can pretty much guarantee you they really want the help. They just don't know how to ask for the help or they're so ashamed to ask for the help that that it paralyzes them. So don't be afraid to ask them if you suspect. Talk to them. Ask them if there's something going on. you have concerns for them? And what can you do to help? Thank you for coming on my podcast. Well, thanks, Cindy, for having me, and thank you for opening this conversation, getting it out there to the listeners, and just, you know, first steps of bringing awareness to the mature population who struggles with disorder. 
Takeaways. Everyone knows someone that has an eating disorder. If you suspect someone has one, ask them. If someone you know has confided in you that they have an eating disorder, talk to them about it. Don't ignore the subject or sweep it under the rug. Even if you're uncomfortable, just ask them to help you understand what it is and what they need. If they've had the courage to trust you with their secret, then reach out and ask how they are doing and let them know that you are available to talk anytime. If you would like to reach out to Shell, you can do so through her private Facebook group at Beyond Bulimia. According to Statistics Canada, there are over 1 million people in Canada that struggle with an eating disorder. 90% of them are women. If you or someone you know is struggling with an eating disorder, there are some resources on the Canadian Mental Health Association website at www.cmha.bc.ca or you can always call HealthBC at 811. Remember, crisis lines aren't only for people in crisis. You can call for information on local services or if you just need someone to talk to. If you live in BC and are in distress, call 310-6789. All provinces and states have a similar contact phone line. January 26 is Bell's Let's Talk Day which is the world's biggest conversation about mental health. Reach out to someone you think might be struggling and let them know you are there for them. If you know someone that would benefit from hearing Shell's story, share this podcast and tag me at Cindy M. Dudley on Instagram. Next episode, we meet someone that started a program in January 2021 and stuck to it. It wasn't a New Year's resolution. It was a life-changing decision. And just always remember, you are not the sum total of your sad stories. <laughs>